Hi everyone and welcome to the Dot Built Environment podcast. This is the second episode and this is the first in the series of housing episodes that we're going to run. Um, we've got lined up for you Josh Ryan Collins, who's a senior economist at the New Economics Foundation. He co-wrote the book Rethinking the Economics of London Housing with Toby Lloyd and Laurie McFarlane and we were very happy to go and visit them and interview him. A credit to Josh, who's written an excellent book. It's comprehensive, it's written in a language that is understandable by the layperson, and it's also well-referenced. Very proud to have a signed copy to go up with my collection of signed copies of books from economists. You're such a fanboy. Yeah, I know. Enjoy, everyone. Enjoy. I'm Josh Ryan Collins. I'm a senior economist at the New Economics Foundation, which is a think tank based here in London. We've been around since the mid-80s working on policies to support uh, environmental sustainability, well-being, social justice. And I work particularly on macroeconomic issues and uh, finance type issues. Land to me seems pretty self-evident as somebody who's not a trained economist land is just a thing that you buy and you put things on it and then that generates value there you go that's my understanding of land um, obviously it's a bit more nuanced than that from uh, kind of my background as a landscape architect there's uh, you know a, a long long history of, of of man in the landscape in the UK so far as you could say that pretty much uh, everything about the UK is developed to some sense. Mm. Um, nothing that we uh, look at is natural. There's no such thing in the UK because we've been cultivating it for thousands of years that the woods are all man-made, the roads, the hills, so much of it is all man-made. Uh, it's, it's difficult for me to understand uh, exactly kind of how um, we segue from land, this object that is good for ecology, for pushing species through for kind of uh, habitat and, and, and corridors and that sort of thing, and how that suddenly flips to this um, this commodity, I guess. So it's something that everyone's very hungry for and just wants more and more and more of it, and there's not enough, and we need we just keep, need to keep s- supplying it from a limited supply. And, and there seems to be this kind of argument about why there's not enough land, um, versus kind of from my perspective and I will stop ranting shortly but once I get going you know what I'm like um from my perspective there are two very different debates in the UK there is a London debate and there is a rest of country debate or at least a southeast debate versus a rest of country debate um so I mean what do you have to say about that Neil I guess I'm going to take the point of view as a homeowner. One of the things that I found interesting about going through the process of buying a house originally was looking at the history in terms of like what my parents went through. They bought their houses for tens of thousands of pounds and they're worth hundreds. And mm. I always thought that uh, at the time, being quite naive, this is ten years ago, that you know, we that was that was kind of set. There wasn't going to be that much of a much of a rise. We're not going, you know, I'm not going to see my house go from being worth hundreds of thousands of pounds to, to millions. Mm. Um, and I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not done that, but you know, in, in you know, the short period of time that I've owned a home, 
the the economics of of how, how its new values come around is, is is still somewhat baffling to me. As someone with some economics training, I so some. so okay. So is this a new thing? It has land suddenly transformed. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, the UK is in some ways um, a special case in that something quite strange happened in the 1980s in the UK. So if you look at uh, sort of charts showing the relationship between um, house prices and income, for example, what you find is up to about the 1980s, things moved around a bit and there was a general increase of, of house prices against incomes. But then from the 80s, you see this acceleration of house prices away from, from incomes and, and more generally economic growth in the economy. So clearly something important happened in that period. Um, and in the book, uh, we postulate that there are a number of explanations, and one of which is the familiar one around uh, insufficient supply, particularly of affordable housing. But our sort of key argument actually is that, as you were alluding to there, that housing and land actually changed its nature somewhat and became not just something you would seek to have shelter and a place to live or, or work, but actually became something of a financial asset or a way of securing your economic security as just to, as opposed to kind of your physical security, I guess. Okay, because it's my understanding that, it, well, for a long time, successive... Uh, groups within government and at both levels at central and local government have been selling off assets left right and center uh, which seems to me like a bit of a short-term approach to land it seems like something that it has an intrinsic value because it's land and you can use it for stuff but i don't see any other value beyond that i mean am i am i looking looking wrong at this or is this just something that has been added onto it by it becoming becoming a, a banking commodity. If you just look at what banks lend against in this country, around two-thirds of, of bank lending flows into real estate, whether that's commercial real estate or domestic real estate, which is, which is significantly larger. Now, that's actually quite high. Most banks in most countries uh, lend a majority of, of financing, um, or at least they used to, before the last sort of 20 years to businesses. And that's that's the sort of, I guess, textbook definition of what a bank does. It, it lends to businesses that invest in products and services. But we've seen this switch, um, particularly in the 90s, uh, with banks increasingly lending against land. And I think that's to do with, two, that's, the reason for that is, is two things. Firstly, it's because um, banks have got um, larger and they tend to prefer bigger loans and um, loans against property tend to be larger than loans against uh, to, to small businesses, for example, which tend to be smaller. And because they're lower risk in general, um, domestic uh, real estate loans are backed by the land itself. Mm. Yeah, the land doesn't go away. The land is fixed. It's stable. It can't be hidden. Um, and it's a very good form of collateral for those reasons. And it's finite. I mean, as we, as we know very well in this country, you can't just create more land just because you desire more land. Um, so it's a very good form of collateral, and the banking system has 
um, increasingly as it's become as banks have become bigger, they've, they're looking for larger loans with that are more secure um, to prop up their their balance sheets. So they're they're being risk averse. In one sense, they are. In another sense, um, you could argue, and the Bank of England certainly uh, has become conscious of this, that if you have, um, if too much of your, too many of your assets are locked into one particular asset class, in this case, property, and become dependent on that, the price of those assets increasing, or at the very least not falling, then you're exposing yourself um, to a level of risk. If that fluctuates, yeah. if the value, you know, if there's a crash in the price of land, you, you're going to sink. Yeah. Right? You're going to lose all your money. Well, you're, you're, there's a potential that if there's an economic shock, which is usually associated with a fall in house prices, people will struggle to meet their mortgage payments and the loans could default. Um, and yeah, then, then the banks are, are definitely in. In trouble. So it's, it's a broader argument really in the UK about whether the whole economy has now become too dependent on the value of real estate. Uh, it also ties into the fact that people increasingly with the deregulation in the 1980s used the, their properties as a means of withdrawing value to, to actually fund their spending on holidays or home improvement with home equity withdrawals. That became a major source of demand in the economy, particularly under the Blair government, actually, in the, in the 2000s. And, um, yeah, the, the question really is, is how we sort of de-link the, the wider economy from household debt and land itself at the source of that, of that debt. How on earth people afford to do what they do? Because you know, there's an element of, the, I think, the lay person thinks that everybody's earning £100,000 in the city and they're all... You know, driving around in all these cars and going on these holidays, and everyone's caught in this sort of. That is my perception. And, 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 <laughs> and my, wife, my wife thinks that. I'm like, no, wages are like. They're stagnant. And I, I just thought that people were just maxing out credit cards. I think they're doing that as well. Mm. But this the first time I've ever thought, oh, I, I didn't realise people that were financing consumption through the first time I ever connected that. Through their, their property. Yeah. Yeah. You know, use the finance to make home improvements because mm. it's an investment within itself. But it just seems ludicrous to go through that transaction cost to go on holiday. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, no. People do, don't they? Lots of people. Do. I did. I just, I just, the, the thought never crossed my mind. Yeah. And it might be why that. I mean, I, do, do, do you know the balance between sort of credit card debt and household debt? I, I mean, say household um, mortgage. Uh, what's the technical term for mortgage? So you've got credit card debt and is it just mortgage? Mortgage debt. debt. Yeah. It, it, mortgage debt is, is much larger than consumer debt, but consumer debt is rising at a much faster rate than mortgage debt at the moment, and that's actually the area that there's most concern about in terms of financial stability at the moment. The problem is, is you can't separate the, the costs on the on the balance sheets and the P&Ls because there's no classification for these things. Mm. So I've, I've, I've always said if you can include elements of how, you know, the, the building of stuff and land... As explicit line items in mm, the accounts, mm, mm. I think it will because people um, people must use these mechanisms to, you know, God knows what I don't even fudge stuff, do, yeah, fudge stuff because it's just it's just rolled up so high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Just, it's just Is there any countries that do? Well, there's a section in the book on on accounting and and why and how it doesn't land isn't properly accounted for and capital gains isn't isn't properly separated out from the concept of wealth. Yeah. Um, so we sort of argue that actually 
um, well, we look at Piketty's data and we sort of critique Piketty because Piketty shows that this wealth to income ratio is massively increased mm. and that, you know, that's a sign of a return to sort of um, capitalists milking labour, essentially. Yeah taking more and more of, of profits as paying, paying yeah. less. But actually, if you, if you break down the, the data, most, almost all of the increase in the wealth-to-income ratio is just capital gains from, from real estate. And actually, the increase in profits from business investment hasn't changed. So one of the reasons why we've come to speak with you today is uh, we picked up your book, very interesting read. Uh, some of the references you've got in here are, are really credible, and one of the reasons why... I, I was excited to read it because uh, it's nice to see the application of some of the things that I've been reading in my own research in reality. Lots of things I've been reading about broader issues about the macroeconomy globally, but to mm. see it in context to the UK and, uh, and something you know, close to every, most people's hearts is land. I'll be honest, I've not read it, but you've recommended it and that is enough for me. If you think that's relevant, I will read it. Yeah, and I, I think um, in, in terms of the, the structure, I mean, what is the, the, the desired audience? Well, the audience is, we've, we've tried to do quite an ambitious thing, actually, and we've tried to write something that is intellectually quite robust and could essentially stand up to, you know, academic debate and be used as a, as a textbook in universities with something that's actually reasonably accessible to a, a wider audience. So, you know, people working in the built environment are definitely a target audience of the book. Uh, equally, people working in housing policy and more generally economists and other social scientists who I think are becoming increasingly aware that um, there hasn't been enough focus on land and the economics of land, and particularly in regard to housing and house prices in um, both policy and economic theory um, in the last few decades. Um, so it is quite, it is, it is aiming to be accessible, but quite uh, robust and, and well-referenced and um, to give people interested in the topic a way into it, and which they can then use to, to go further. Absolutely. So if I come into this and read this book, uh, is it going to equip me with an understanding of the various different arguments and the various perspectives on that? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we, we've got a, a chapter in there on the basic thinking theory around ownership, property ownership, landed property ownership, what's the sort of philosophical justification for it and the political justification for it. We've got a chapter on um, different economic theories of land and the role of land in the economy. And the book doesn't, it's, it's not a polemic, it doesn't push one particular uh, theoretical approach, it tries to be objective across different approaches. But it does, as a general um, view, uh, advocate that mainstream economic thinking and, and sort of standard policy around housing and land has got it wrong, basically, has misunderstood it or um, neglected key features of land, uh, key economic features in particular. So what is the common understanding of land and land policy? So the, the basic argument we make is that in economic theory, you have two major factors of production. One is capital and the other is labour. 
And the basic argument of the book is that there's one missing, <laughs> which is, you know, which is land, essentially. And actually, the classical political economists, such as John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith and Marx, um, did understand that land was a key feature of production. And it had very important, unique properties, such as being finite, um, being uh, and not being able to move, being locked in, in place uh, and being irreproducible. Ir- irreproducible um, and that, that those key features would have very important impacts on capital investment and on the productivity of uh, the economy and labor as well but what happened was with the development of neoclassical economics which is still the dominant paradigm these unique properties of land got sort of obfuscated they got sort of essentially land was merged into this rather vague notion of capital which includes um, all kinds of tools that you would use to put into the the production process Uh, it was just seen as another one of these these tools actually virtually every other commodity isn't finite you know you can make more of uh, you can make more iphones if there's more demand for iphones you know the you can reduce the price by doing that. There'll be a market equilibrium. These rules don't apply to land. You can't just make more land. The The price of land is de- determined, we argue, by a number of political decisions around how land is used and um, how much money is flowing into it, which are quite different from, from normal goods and services in the rest of the economy. I think it's really interesting because thinking of, you know, you out there, the dot-built environment followers, a generation that's sort of entering the reality of the outcome of what's happened previously in terms mm. of wanting to live somewhere, um, both physically in a house, but also the location of that and where they work and the dynamics of that. I just had to tell my mortgage provider I'm going to retire at 75 to, or, to afford a mortgage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. It's, it's, it's insane. And, and that's, a, that's an interesting thing. So the... The quality of work as you go through life and the things that you need to do in the entail, um, the, the relationship with the way that you live with the, these things that you mentioned in the book. Uh, yeah. I wonder if, is, is, there a, is there a message that you can give to that generation in terms of, is this, is this something that you feel that can be done or things that they should at least be mindful of in mm. stepping foot into this world for the first time? Mm. Yeah, I think... Um the key thing to say would be that if you're working in the industry, take seriously what's going on at a policy level. You know, what are the uh, rules uh, around how land is used? How can you influence those? What are the rules around how land is taxed? How can you influence those? What are the rules around the finance that can flow into land and, and property? You know, and how does that affect what you want to achieve in your career? So if you want to help more people um, live in good quality, sustainable housing, does the current model, uh, uh, the sort of speculative house builder model that is dominant in the UK, allow you to do that? And if not, you know, what kind of steps, what organisation should you be supporting to try and and change that? If you had... Two people, early career, sit in front of you and they asked, you know, where, where should I go? What would make the biggest impact? Shall I, shall I run for office? <laughs> shall I start myself up a new development business that's going to be sustainable? Or shall I go and invent a new way to 
build sustainable housing? What what would be the? Well, you could build islands off the in the uh, dredge, South China or, Sea. Or, or, <laughs> a dredging company. <laughs> create create new land. Yeah, that's. Uh, that's the utopian view, but unfortunately, um, only China can do that, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, you know, I'm not going to tell people what to do, but I think what, what, you, what you want to do is find ways of moving beyond this, this speculative house building model where developers essentially make money not from the provision of high quality, affordable homes that have focused on you know, people's well-being but from getting hold of some land getting planning permission for it building when it suits them i.e when land prices have risen enough to meet the cost that they put out to get the land in the first place and make a healthy return um that model we've got to change that model that that's defunct because i had only really just recently found out that uh, a lot of big developers are sitting on lots of land. I yep. thought there was a shortage because that's the that's the narrative is that yep. there is a housing crisis mm. and the housing crisis is because there is a lack of land. Yeah. And then you look into it and you think, well, actually, there's lots of land. There's, yep. they're, they're not the the developers aren't developers; they're land banks mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, I mean, they're they're, they're sort of. They could be redescribed as land bankers rather than developers. Certainly, quite a few of them. And I think for smaller for smaller developers or, or people seeking to break into the market, there is real barriers to entry because of this kind of of activity. I mean, essentially, it's a very oligopolistic mm. market. That's you know, an excellent word. Dominated by you know five or six big players. A bit like the banking sector. A bit like energy. You know, we've got the same kinds of problems here where you've got um, these dominant players pursuing quite a speculative model that isn't focused on long-term positive outcomes for people. And, um, you know, to break through that, we need some systemic change around policy and and laws um, and, you know, things like compulsory purchase orders, you know, allowing local authorities to buy up land at um, agricultural rates, if the purpose is to build affordable housing um, rather than developers just dominating the market, developers driven by short-term shareholder returns. Mm. Um, so why can't just, I'm going to go back to the kind of original argument, why can't just free, mar- free market economics sort it out? Because doesn't it just sort everything out? Isn't it the magical panacea? I suppose that we're back to that debate about this kind of, ne- is it neoliberalism? That's neoliberalism. Thank you, Neil, for nodding. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's back to the point I made I made earlier, which is which is this uh, failure of of mainstream sort of you can call it free market, but I, I would call it neoclassical economics okay. to recognise the distinctive features of land, the fact that it that it is in finite supply. Um, so, so you know, as I said, if there's more demand for mobile phones, you know, Apple or Samsung will make more mobile phones. The price might might fall. Um, an equilibrium will be found, the market will clear. Those rules just don't apply to land um, because it, its value in, a, in an economy which is growing, particularly in cities, for example, um, its value is almost certain to go up as more collective investment goes into the, the region or the area where the land is. Um, you know, the question is, why should one particular developer um, essentially monopolise the value of that increase in the value of land because the the investment is is collective investment it's businesses it's 
local authorities, it's government, building infrastructure, um, improving the roads, better schools, whatever it is. It, it's the, the case for the private sector, the market, um, dominating those returns um, hasn't been made. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So you've, you've got to have other forms of, or at least a mixed market of supply when it comes to housing and, and land. Um, primarily focused not on capital gains, rentier profits, basically, but, but focused on the provision of, of affordable, high-quality housing. And so the kind of compulsory purchase powers would help mm. that? Yeah, because uh, local authorities are should be uh, interested in the long-term um, well-being of their communities that they represent. Um, and the, they, they obviously have to provide social housing, make, make sure people in the area are properly housed. And there's, there's incentives for them to build the right kind of housing um, to, to house people in their areas. There isn't incentives to just buy land, hold on to it, and then you know build two-bedroom luxury flats that they can flog to the highest bidder. It's interesting, you're talking about these, these balances, there's, there's quite a few balances that you mentioned in this book, and one of the balances that I was interested in is this balance between um, you know, the opportunities in renting and, and owning, mm. for them to be balanced. Mm. I just wondered, is, is, is balance the goal, or is, is everyone better off if, if it's 100% ownership, or which, what, how does that dynamic work? Well, yeah, this is a, a fundamental um, issue that we discuss in the book is, is the, the right balance between different tenures. And there are, of course, advantages to, to home ownership. Um, and historically, if you, look, if you look back in history, um, the increase in home ownership, particularly amongst the middle classes in the UK and other advanced economies, um, was associated with increasing economic growth and I think a sense of, of freedom that, you know, if you own your own home, you can, um, you have more security. Um, and um, you also do have an asset that you can, uh, for example, use to leverage finance to support your business. I mean, there are, there are advantages. But at some point, there's, there's a tipping point, essentially, where um, uh, land and housing becomes such a, an important financial asset that its value rises well beyond people's incomes. And then, of course, people can't afford to buy homes or, or the only way to buy homes is to get themselves into so much debt that they can't actually buy other things that they need in the economy, at which point the whole economy starts to, to slow down. And that's where we are, I think, at the moment. That is where I am personally um, right now. <laughs> yeah, that's where a lot of us are, whereby we've got these enormous mortgage debts and we're not able to go on, on the holidays we want to go on with our kids. We're not able to buy the things we need. And that's, that's not just bad news for us, actually. That's bad news for, for demand in the whole economy. And we get caught in this sort of debt cycle um, where house prices, all of, our, all of our disposable income gets thrown into the mortgage and house prices keep going up and spending starts slowing down. So my understanding is, uh, I think you can look at planning in the UK from post-war onwards. I think that's the kind of the conversation to have about planning, where it started off very much centrally controlled, um, 
almost utopian envision, perhaps. You know, there was a, there was a lot of work to do. There were, you know, a lot of people's houses just didn't exist anymore. We needed to do something about it, and then um, skip a few decades, and we're in a situation where we're not sure if we want to vaguely allocate areas of land for certain purposes at the regional level, let alone at the, at the kind of smaller level. And there's this kind of tension between um, the, the planning laws as they stand and the functions that they're supposed to serve and the things that they're supposed to, uh, on the one hand, protect, because people in Britain are very protective of the landscape, um, and at the same time massively woeful of the cost of of houses, so there's a, there's that tension that needs to be balanced of the democratic versus the kind of economic uh, benefits. Um, so I think that is a continuum for me, somewhere along the lines of massively regulated, so that the um, the body, whoever it is, whether it's central government or a local council, are defining a specific house capacity, this size, this road goes here, all the way to a very kind of decentralized system where we have now, which is basically, here's a target, it would be nice if you hit it, and we will give you some money for that. Um, where do you think on that continuum um, the, the, the answer lies? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the problem with the UK planning system that we, we have at the moment is um, the, the incentives are not aligned across different bodies. So, um, you know, uh, the government has a, a set of priorities usually associated with more people owning their own home and it being reasonably affordable. Local authorities have their targets. Um, but what's lacking, I think, is a sort of long-term vision for um, housing and um, in particular the, the powers being held at the right level to enable um, the sort of long-term sustainable housing to be provided um, in in Europe you know in places like Germany and, and Denmark um, the municipalities tip, typically would have the power to actually have control over quite large chunks of land and say this area of land will be used for you know small businesses affordable housing we'll put this road here we'll put this school here and they have a sort of 10-year kind of plan for an area <laughs> and um, because it's devolved, because it's not the government doing it, because it's, 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 it's this, the city region or the municipality, um, they, they do have an understanding of what people actually need in that area. Um, in this country, the government has its vision, but actually the local authorities typically don't have enough powers. They don't have that ability to have control over larger areas. And developers, as we've talked about, play this quite dominant role in terms of actually making the decisions about what, what gets built where. Um, so there's a term plan making that's um, often used in the European context where the local authority, perhaps working with other businesses or developers, you know, they come up with a plan, a vision for how an area will be developed. And it's not just about building expensive two bed flats. It's about, you know, the whole infrastructure of the area. Um, and making a place livable. Um, I think that livable aspect is a really good one because there's um, there's a real issue of you know kind of urban sprawl, infinite suburbia, mm. which I think an unchecked planning system helps create. Because yeah. 
they have, you know, if it was totally unregulated, the interest only exists to make a profit, and therefore you wouldn't provide schools, you wouldn't provide, you know, surgeries or, or really much of anything beyond what you needed to get people into those houses and, mm. and service them. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Service them not in the sense of their utilities, not in the sense of a pig. Yeah. And I think the, the the role of the planner is has been sort of really undermined in this country. The mm. um, you know, the way the media talks about planning is always very, very negative. It's very they're very bureaucratic. I mean maybe they are to, to an extent. But actually the role of the planner should be like creating a vision for for an area and market making as it were sort of saying this is what we're going to do with this area and then you're you're because investors have got the confidence as a you know there's a 10-year plan for a vision for what this is going to look like they will come in then understanding how they can contribute rather than just a system where the task is to grab a bit of land hold on to it till its value rises because of other investments that have nothing to do with you and, and then sell it off to the to the highest bidder which is more the model we have here it's interesting that continuum of centralised and decentralised, and it takes us back to one of the debates that we've had we've had previously on the webcast about you know, distributed technologies. Mm. And I was wondering what your thoughts on maybe we say about the the financial sector being a big player in this space, and they're going through their own disruption. To someone, you know, there's different opinions out there if they've been disrupted or not. But you know, technology is enabling the democratisation of finance. Do you think that that is something that can be part of improving the system? Is it real? Is it coming along the horizon? Or what's your thoughts? Well, firstly, I don't see that much evidence of finance being democratised. Um, I'd agree to some extent there's some disruption going on, um, particularly with um, you know, peer-to-peer -peer, uh, forms of, of finance. But, you know, I think around 80% of retail deposits are still controlled by five big banks um, in the banking sector. From what I heard, isn't uh, a lot of, in other countries where when there was a crash, they let the banks fail, the kind of green shoots that came up were just better digitally. They were, you know, they used new tools, they used the things that they had. I'm thinking specifically of Turkey, where they did let the banks fail, and then just the new organisations that came up were because they were newer, they weren't kind of Victorian or older um, companies. They were just inherently more customer focused because that is how you would be. Is it? Is it just? Is this a legacy of of just keeping in the incumbent? Well, uh, certainly the you know the bailing out of the banks in the UK um, came at a huge cost to the taxpayer and, and doesn't seem to have you know helped us change the either the, the, the sort of systemic problems in the banking sector or in the wider economy, which I talked about earlier, around this excessive amount of credit flowing into land and property and not enough going into productive business investment. Um, the, the disruption that you've seen in the UK, I don't think has reached a scale to really make a, a change to that. So, you know, even the peer-to-peer um, -peer, uh, financial institutions that are, that are growing fast, um, again, are focusing more on, in some cases, consumer credit or, or mortgage credit, you know, or real estate-backed loans than they are necessarily business lending. So um, the institutions may be changing and becoming more nimble and perhaps becoming more customer-focused, but that's not changing this, this 
big macro problem of too much credit going into property and not enough going into you know businesses perhaps the kinds of startups that some of your listeners are, are trying to develop it's very interesting actually um there are some statistics on startups specifically in the uk and uh companies over three years old in the uk that were started by entrepreneurs between the ages of 18 and 24 uh, have zero uh, percent chance of having more than 20 staff whereas in uh, china in the usa and a few other uh, places that you know maybe this is unrelated um, they uh, they just can't scale they can't break into um, these wider markets they can't really shoot up um, and grow because as with things like planning whenever you try and do anything in the UK there are a lot of barriers mm. in the way that maybe you just you just need to know you can't you or you have to pay someone to tell you there's no way that you could just go I've got an idea I'm gonna make it happen and then just make it happen there's a lot there's a lot of loopholes and it's good that some of those loopholes are there but this uh, I think credit is a huge problem uh, faced by these sorts uh, of organizations and we've seen this in the built environment as well um, just liquidity generally sinks a lot of companies mm. uh, yeah I guess there's, there's two things it's just that the, the payment practices of the of the of the industry um, which I don't think we need to cover here but I think more on that investment piece mm. we see lots of startups that can't get investment for two reasons one is this macro issue of money just not coming their way mm. how about go and buy yourself a house and then leverage it off there that's probably <laughs> that's the advice right now that's the only way you can is it really? well, mm. well uh, that's the advice I'm taking the other hand is you know uh, construction technology isn't attractive to investors that hold the capital. There's not many investors that hold capital that are have any knowledge in the construction industry. So, um, looking at uh, you know standardised design for houses and having pop up factories that build them and and what have you to try and meet the demand that's needed. You know, we've mm. got a skills gap. We haven't got enough people to build them. So let's go and stick them in factories. I mean, do you have a vision of Factories being popped up and down the country to spew out houses. That uh, you know, what, how how do you think we're going to meet that demand in terms of actually putting people into houses? Forget mm. about the financing of it for now. Mm, mm. Well, I'm not an expert on building houses. Um, I realise there's a big skills gap in, the, of in terms of traditional building skills, and um, obviously Brexit's probably not going to help that problem if we're you know stopping anyone who knows how to do that stuff coming into the country. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I, you know, it doesn't sound like an attractive vision to me, uh, mass-produced um, pop-up housing, uh, but we do have a genuine affordability crisis at the moment. And if, it, if, they, if the types of homes that are being built are that much more affordable that they could support that problem, then, then yes. But you know, my suspicion is it, it's not really... The, the financial problem is not really in terms of getting the houses built, it's getting the land to build them on mm. at, a, at a price that's, that's sort of reasonable. So it's interesting. Yeah. That it does seem that that actually will affect our listeners, certainly the, those who are uh, the innovators, those who are starting up um, and have kind of early uh, tech companies. That, that land is actually massively affecting them because they're just not as attractive as as buying land as something that is 
it's such great collateral, as you said. Mm. Um, so I guess there is a personal advantage for us in a sense of defining where we stand um, that we should try and decouple this kind of obsession with land uh, from our own perspective um, simply so that we can get to a system where there is better lending for small businesses because that is one of our big focuses so I wonder mm. um, I, I wonder how that's done elsewhere for example Germany and that sort of so in, in Germany and um, Switzerland and Austria a couple of other European countries you actually have uh, regional banks or banks publicly owned banks in some cases that are focused on lending to businesses in the region where they they actually are based um, so in germany you have the they're called sparkassen they are um, banks that are partially owned by the local authority partially owned by um, businesses typically on the board in the area on the board of the bank um, and they have a long history of lending to smes in productive sectors i mean this germany's high exports are driven by this kind of financial support um the they also have a national development bank the kfw that uh, subsidizes loans to small businesses particularly in innovative areas like like solar for example and um this model is hugely successful i mean these banks during the crisis just carried on lending because they built relationships with those businesses they got they get to know them over a period of years and that's how they de-risk the loans because they have such good information on not only the individuals who are going to be spending their money but actually what's happening in the local economy that they don't need always to get collateral they don't always need to back the loans with uh, land and that's what we've got to try and move towards a different kind of banking system that is is focused on the business you know whether it's construction or whatever it might be they understand that the industry what we've proposed at the new economics foundation is that the royal bank of scotland that is 83% publicly owned still even almost 10 years after it was nationalized um uh, should be broken up into um uh, what we call pub citizens banks focused on regional lending across the country you might have about 150 of them so you wouldn't need to create new banks you'd just turn rbs into these regional banks and they would be focused on lending to smes within a defined area so they would be legally obliged to lend within within that defined area so our young entrepreneurs would be able to benefit from that yeah, I believe they would. Um, these banks, also the ownership structure, they wouldn't have shareholders. They'd be what we call stakeholder banks, like the German model. They would be owned by the local authority and businesses in the area would, would own the, the, the banks. And that and their hope would be that they, they, would, they would then have a much more longer-term perspective. They wouldn't be looking for quarterly returns to their shareholders. And they would be interested in really improving the quality of businesses in specific areas and, and working with young entrepreneurs. Wow. Sounds like a, an interesting solution to, to the two problems is the, 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 that credit feedback cycle and trying to have a mechanism that breaks that, but also it serves in terms of putting our construction hats on it, it may give us an opportunity to have investment into things that could help, mm. you know, making sure that we don't have these monolithic factories up and down the country. Mm. Um, I mean, there's some nifty things that you can do with design if you think about cars you know, your average German-made car, the chassis of those are very similar. Mm. And it's all the 
extras that you put on that make it personalised. I think that's probably more of the style of when we talk about mass-produced housing. Mm. It's not going to mm. be like when we had prefabrication previously post-war. We all know what that looks like, and that's not that nice. But I think there's a balance to be had. But I think, and this is the connection to to learn about how we can get investment into the technologies that we need to make our industry better because we deliver houses, rail, road, schools, research facilities, etc. Mm. Mm. It sounds like a it sounds like a you know, a good vision for an ecosystem for mm. a multitude of things. I mean and the other the other intervention that, that you know you that I think we should be making on the, the, the finance side would be some sort of national investment bank. Um, the UK is quite unusual actually in not having a large bank with public funding, usually leveraging in private capital as well. Um, and a number of parties have proposed that, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, not the Conservative Party, sadly. Um, but if you had investment at scale into, say, house home building, then perhaps that would give you the finance for, to get those economies of scale mm. that you're, you're talking about there, maybe, whether it's, you know mass production of particular high quality homes um, a national investment bank could give you that that kind of scale at the moment because none of the big banks you know and these are really big banks with assets like multiple times UK GDP they're just not focused on this you know they're just not interested in in supporting home building they're interested in supporting inflating land prices and and, and enabling people to buy um, pre-existing property not building new property not investing in innovation mm. in the construction industry um so we we need like at scale financing uh, to achieve i think what you're you're talking about there absolutely and i think we've i think we've managed to find where the connectivity is i think some people may have found you know why, why go and talk to an economist about land and i think i think we've I think we've shown that. I think we've joined the so, dots. I'm yeah, not sure we knew we were going to join the dots, <laughs> but we did join. We're the glad dots. to help. <laughs> I think we've joined the dots well, and I think I think um, it's time to say thank you very much for your time. Thank I've you. Learned lots. So yes. have I. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I actually from this, it's interesting in terms of what d- dot built environment are trying to do. I suppose we loosely, a think tank, not as a formal the one you represent, but you know, we, we we have ears into certain corners of the industry that I think actually this could be the kernel of something interesting in terms of finding new ways of because we, we, we are we are an organization that wants to try and get to the proxy issue of why can't the technology that some of our rep- some of our listeners are trying to develop mm. and they can't get money for and actually there's a there's a cause there to change. So yeah, there's a fundamental problem. Thank you for switching that light on in my brain. My it's pleasure. Been, it's been, <laughs> You're going to go on a crusade now, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to go on a crusade now. That's that. And I hope it's been of of, of value to you. Yeah, no, it's been been really interesting to find out more about uh, what's happening in the construction industry. All right, well, our thanks for this episode have to go to Josh Ryan Collins and the New Economics Foundation for hosting us for that conversation. Um, I thought that was really interesting, and I hope you did too.